Welcome to the Atmosphere Church Podcast. On behalf of all of us here at Atmosphere, thank you for downloading or streaming this message. Regardless of what you believe, where you come from, or what questions you might have, you are welcome here. Our desire is to help lead you in experiencing God by following Jesus. If you want to find out more information about us, head over to our website at atmosphere.church. Enjoy the message. As you saw in that video, we are in a talk series. This is part three of this talk series that we've simply called Identity Theft. And if you've been at our previous talks, you know kind of the idea here is to introduce you to the topic of spiritual warfare. And even though we're a new church, I'm not new to church. I've been pastoring for a couple decades now, believe it or not. And I'm convinced that one of the most undertaught subjects in the modern church is spiritual warfare. But I, I'm convinced at the same time, it's the most important subject that we need to learn about because we have a spiritual adversary against our life that is trying to sabotage the things that God wants to do with our lives. And so he does it so well with trying to distort and confuse our identity, who we are in Christ. And so if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke. But just to kind of start us off, I'm going to review kind of what is the theme verse in the series. It's John 10, 10. I'm going to read from the Amplified version. It says, the thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in what is that word, church? Abundance. And I love how the Amplified kind of spells it out. It says, to the full till it overflows. So Jesus came on mission to this earth to make sure that we live not ordinary lives, but extraordinary lives. Not just with a little bit of life, but a whole lot of life. So much life that it's splashing over to other people. So he wants you to have so much life that you're giving life away to other people that are around your life. So our spiritual enemy comes in and wants to rip us off, not just for our own lives, but he wants to rip us off from the people around our life that are to experience this life that we have in him. So one of the biggest ways that we suffer identity theft is that he lies to us. And we talked about how the truth sets us free. And if truth sets us free, what does a lie do? A lie holds us in captivity. And as long as we're being held in captivity, we cannot see our true identity. And without seeing our true identity, it's going to be very difficult to get to our destiny. So as we look at this, we've been talking about some of the most common lies our spiritual enemy loves to tell our brains. And last week, wow, it was so powerful. I've got to tell you guys that this is the best gathering to come to because if, if God's moving, we have all afternoon to stay together and let God move. You know, the last service, we got to get him out of here. So we got, we got a little extra worship in last week uh, because this is the last gathering. But God did some incredible things with people's lives. Some people were set free last week because one of the biggest lies that so many people here is you're not enough. And we kind of filled in the blank of you're not good enough, you're not qualified enough, you're not pretty enough. Or, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But today, I would say, is probably the runner-up lie that so many of us battle with. And I would say that it has so many people stuck in neutral and preventing them from driving their life forward in their faith. And that is the lie of you're a failure. You're a failure. Now, when I say that, a lot of us know that we've had moments in our life where we failed. Can you think of a moment in your life that you've failed, that you've made a mistake and you have regrets? You know, if life was an Instagram post, you would go back to that moment and you would delete it so that you don't have to relive it. But unfortunately, life is not an Instagram post. Sometimes, you know, you have a moment in your life and, it, and, and maybe even sometimes a friend has it recorded. There was a, right when like YouTube began getting really popular, it was like 2007. And there was a beauty contest 
called Miss Teen USA. And there was this young girl from South Carolina that went viral. One of the first viral videos ever to hit YouTube was this poor girl from South Carolina, Miss South Carolina, Teen USA. She was like 18 years old. I think I have a picture of her in Mario Lopez's interview. And she, she is asked a question by a celebrity in the audience. And she has this moment, and I don't know if you've ever been asked a question and you didn't really, like, you, it surprised you and you were on the spot. Think about the national television. Everyone's, like, looking at you. A crowd of celebrities is, is watching you. Slater is, at, is right in front of you, you know, you know, saved by the bell. It's not Mario, that's Slater. Um, so you, you've, got, you've got this moment, and every, you know, I, all, all eyes are on you. And she totally fogs up and she rambles this 30 second answer that was just gibberish it it made no sense and and we're all watching and we're all thinking the same thing like this poor girl somebody just like quiet the mic and and the the end of the story is pretty good because even though she she kind of had a failure moment she was able to read bound from that and and it gave her some opportunities I think if she answered a a question really well would have she would have never had those opportunities but but it's like you you think of that poor girl having to relive that moment over and over and over again and I have one of those moments I'm embarrassed about this but I was on a national game show called Family Feud (laughs) and there's a reason you don't know about this there's a reason I have not talked about this because it was a failure moment for Pastor Jim. Because, you know, for those of you that have never, you know, we've watched the show, watching the show and being on the show, totally two different experiences. I'll, I'll just tell you right now, it was like crazy. But I will say like the prep and like preppiness to go on the show, like our family, this is Tara's family, the Vietti family. So uh, we, we were crushing all of the competition in their kind of weeding out who is, you know, not qualified enough to go on television. And, and we just like crushed the competition. Like the producers are like, oh, you guys are so good. You're so perfect. We even heard a conversation from another family in the green room going, oh, I hope we are not paired up with the Vietti family. Oh, and I was like, oh, we got this, man. We got this. There was our moment. We got teamed up with another family. And, you know, the host came out. It's, uh, I, I, I forget the, the actor's name. I just call him Mr. Peterman from Seinfeld. Um, but, but, you know, we, we went out there. The cameras came on. He came out. And it was like game time, right? Literally game time. And I don't know. I just, there's something about the, the, the environment, the, the cameras on, the crowd, you know, the, the audience. I just, I started kind of getting freaked out. Uh, How many grew up watching Brady Bunch? A little Cindy Brady, you know, remember the episode where the cameras came on? She's like, you know, she's just looking. I go, I'm feeling a Cindy Brady moment right now. Like, what's going to happen? So we were kind of like coaching ourselves, like, whatever we do when we get up there and we have our like round off and and, like our buzzer off, like we're going to hit the buzzer first and, and we'll just rattle off an answer. And so it was my time. I got up there. And, and, you know, the uh, host was telling us uh, top, you know, survey answers on the board. And here's the question. Name evidence that you would find at the scene of a crime. That was the question. And so what would your answer be? Just yell it out to me. What? Yeah. DNA, blood, a weapon, a body. Hair. Yeah. Like that. Great answers. So I was up there and I was so amped to hit the buzzer before the other guy. So as soon as the as soon as he was done, Jim, what's your answer? I go, what's the question? I didn't hear. I was so in my head going, I've got to hit the buzzer, I've got to hit the buzzer. I hit the buzzer and I won, and then I choked. I was like, what? What, is, what do I say? And it's just like a second feels like an hour. And then I just said the first word that came to my mind. I'm like, evidence. And the host kind of looked at me, confused. And, and then he looked at the board and goes, show us evidence. And it's like, bang. And then he looked at 
the, the other guy and he says, do you want to give it a try? He goes, yes, fingerprints, number one answer. And I went back with the tail between my legs and back to my family are like, are you serious? Like evidence? So there's a reason that I've never shared this with you because it's a moment that I wish I could get back. I have replayed that moment over and over and over again. Fingerprint, you dummy. Why'd you say that? It's like a, you can get so stuck in this moment that that's all you hear. And it doesn't help that I have friends that love me so much that every time it re-airs, I know it re-airs because I get text messages, I get Facebook messages, and all they say is evidence. I'm like, I feel the love, man. I feel the love. And it's one thing to fail at a game show. It's another thing to have a moment in life where you fail, where you, where you really royally mess things up with your family, with your job, with your health. And, and I think the devil has a way of amplifying our mistake and our failure so that that's all we think about. Because the more we are stuck in the past, the less likely we are able to see our future in Christ. We get so stuck in this mode. And I want to tell you a story from the Gospel of Luke about a guy named Peter. Now, Peter had a moment where he failed royally. He blew it big time. And he blew it with Jesus. So he kind of was Jesus' right-hand guy. Like, Jesus had a lot of people around his life. But I look at Peter, was like, he was the rock. He, he was, he was the, the kind of the leader. He had that gift of leadership. All the other guys kind of followed Peter. And, and Peter was the guy that would just, you know, think about something and do it and then, and then worry about the consequences later. Do you know somebody like Peter? Just, I, and out of all the Bible characters, honestly, I, I think I identify most with Peter because he had this really great way of doing something before he thought about it. And sometimes that, that got him some, some great opportunity and other times it got him in trouble. I, I feel Peter in a lot of situations, but Jesus was trying to get them to see a serious moment was coming for him. And he was prophetically telling these guys, hey, you guys are all thinking like you're trying to figure out who's the greatest. I'm telling you, there's coming a time where you guys are all going to abandon me. You're all going to desert me. And Peter, just kind of being the guy, he's like, Jesus, like, okay, time out here. All of us are going to abandon you? Like, maybe Judas, that guy creeps me out. Maybe he would do something like I'm feeling weird vibes with that guy. But Jesus, you're talking about me, your bro. He probably leaned in for the bro hug, like, I got you. Like, there's nothing that would happen in your life that would make me turn my back and abandon you. Like, I'm in this thing. If we need to take some people out, we're going to take some people out. And then, and then Jesus, hearing Peter and this, this arrogance of just like, I'm here, I'm your bro. He looked at Peter and said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're actually going to deny me not one time, but three times. And I'm imagining Peter's like wrestling around with Jesus telling him this going, nah, he, I know he's got a lot of things right. He's walking to miracles, but man, I, I don't know about this. Well, Jesus is arrested and the guys do desert him. But Peter, not so much. He stayed at a distance, but he but he kind of trailed Jesus and the arrest that was happening. And he was put on trial. And as they're awaiting the trial and all the process, Peter, it's in the middle of the night. Peter's trying to warm himself by a fire, trying to stay close, but trying to stay kind of under the radar so nobody knows that he's with him because he could be arrested too. He, he knows the, the gravity of the situation. And so in Luke chapter 22, verse 55, and when... Some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together. Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. And she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Now, most Bible scholars believe that at the Sea of Galilee, 
the people that lived in the region, they, they had a little accent to them. I kind of see the Galileans kind of having like a southern draw. I lived in Oklahoma for a little while, and my Oklahoma and Texas friends, they, they don't say you, they say y'all. So I just imagine that Peter kind of had this southern Galilean accent, and man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know, I'm just making that up. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And I don't know if you've ever caught this as you read this, but, but look at the next verse here. It says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. It's one thing to fail somebody, but then to make eye contact. What was that stare like? To, to be able to look into the eyes of Jesus, who you just denied. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me, disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Wow. Peter was right where many of us have been so many times. I blew it. Ah, I said I would always, and I didn't. I said I would never, and I did. I, I, I blew it one too many times, and then it's like when we're at that place, it's like the devil moves in like, like a shark smelling blood in the water, just like just moves in for the kill. Like I've got you right where I want you. And then that's when we start hearing these voices. You're pathetic. You are so messed up. You are so worthless. God will never be able to use somebody like you. After what you said, after what you did, after even what you thought or where you went, you are never going to be able to be used by God. In the moment that voice locks itself into your life, your identity has now been distorted. Because when you start seeing yourself not as somebody that has failed, but you start seeing yourself as a failure, you cannot embrace the ways that God wants to use you in the future because that is the whole point. If, if he can get you locked in to all of the ways that you've messed up in your past, you have no hope for your future. You can't see that there is any future whatsoever of God using you to make a difference, let alone somebody else's life, but your own life. But here's the crazy part, is Jesus knew that Peter was stuck in some shame that he needed to be rescued from. And I believe that God gave me this talk today to help rescue some of you that are stuck in some shame that has creeped up into your life and is trying to rip you off from the identity that God wants you living in. And so Jesus has this moment with Peter after he resurrects from the dead. Now, as we read the gospel of John chapter 21, I, I gotta give you the backstory here because Jesus has already made an appearance to Peter. Peter has already seen the resurrected Jesus. And you would think that by itself would completely transform Peter's life. But it says here in John that even after he had witnessed the resurrection, that Peter went back to doing what he did before. He, he was so locked in to the shame of the things that he had done, he could not see himself being anybody else from the person that he had already been his life. He went backwards. So he told the guys, we're gonna go back fishing because that's what I know how to do. So he goes out fishing, catches no fish, and some strangers on the shore yells over him, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Peter's like, who's this clown? Like, we're professional. We know this, but regardless, nevertheless, what does it hurt? Let's do it. And they throw their net on the other side of the boat and all these fish are brought in. 
And a light bulb moment happens for Peter because this has happened before. And last time it happened, it was Jesus who commanded him to throw his net on the other side of the boat. And he got the same kind of catch. So immediately, Peter and they're like, this is Jesus. And he's making another appearance. Boys, I'm out of here. It says he stripped off his clothes. I don't know if he went skinny dipping or what, but he stripped off his clothes, jumped in the water, and swam to shore to try to get there before the other guys. And it says they all got there, and Jesus had breakfast with them. Can you imagine breakfast with Jesus? So he's got the spread all out for them. And they're having this intimate conversation with the resurrected Savior. And in this breakfast, Jesus looks over at Peter. And he has this conversation with them. And we pick up at verse 15. It says, and when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said simply, feed my sheep. Now, one of my favorite things about this, and I've preached this to you guys before, is not only is this touching on Peter's failure story, but it's really capturing the essence of the restoration that Jesus is giving to Peter's identity. It's not a coincidence that he tells them three times, feed my sheep, do you love me, feed my sheep, because three times he denied them. He was restoring his identity. He was getting him back to a place where he could see himself the same way that God sees him. Yes, you've made a mistake. Yes, you failed. Yes, you've messed up. But my calling in your life, Peter, is irrevocable. Nothing can take away this thing. You have to own it so that you can walk in it. Feed my sheep. Do my will. Show my love. Finish the assignment that I've given you. And that's exactly what happens. I've got to declare to you today, those of you that are stuck in this mode of mistake making and failure, you know, living, and that is failure is an event and it's not a person. You may have failed, but that does not make you a failure. And even though the accuser is in your mind telling you these things of who you are, you need to know he's trying to lie to you so that you will be stuck in your, in your failure and you'll never embrace the true way that God wants to use you to help change the world. So I want to help you today by giving you three truths to come against this lie because that's how we experience freedom. We walk in truth, not in the lie. And so the best way to expose the lie is to give you the truth. So I'm going to give you three life-giving truths as we look at this idea that you're a failure, that we want to come against this voice of the enemy in your life. And here's the first one. It's going to seem so elementary to you, but it is so important for you to not just understand it, but for you to live it. And that is, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Now, I put up something like this, and a lot of you are like, yeah, I know the message. You know, I've been to a lot of Good Fridays. I've, I've had a lot of Easter celebrations. Yes, of course I'm forgiven. You know, it's one thing to know this intellectually and maybe even understand it theologically, but I've been pastoring for a long time, and I've seen so many people never take it to a place where they live it out practically. It's like if you're learning concepts from Scripture but never really seeing it translate into changing your life. Something is off, my friend. Because when the the Bible declares to us, when Jesus' life lets us in that we are forgiven, then it's there not for us to have something that, that we can put on our Instagram bio. It's so that we can live in it on a daily basis because the more that you're living in your forgiveness, the less you will be living in your failure. This is why this is such an important concept to understand and to apply 
and to live up practically. 1 John 1, 9, one of the most famous passages in our entire Bibles about this concept. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what, church? To forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Uh, now, some of you, like, confessing was, like, do I need to, like, like, go in a confessional booth with God and let God in on all the mistakes I've made? He already knows the mistakes you've made. He's God. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Even the thing that you thought, thought nobody saw, God saw it. So confessing it isn't to, like, you know, do a dear diary to God so he can be let in on your mistake. A confession is simply coming into a place in agreement that what you did, what you said, how you lived is not the way God wants you to live your life. You're coming in agreement. You're saying the same thing about this thing that God says. That's confession. And so you confess it and God is going to come in and forgive you. And the word forgiveness there is a term of release. That this mistake, this sin, this failure in your life that is, has grabbed hold of you and is weighing you down and is sucking the life out of you, Jesus came to deliver you of that by giving you forgiveness of your sin. And the Bible tells us we all have it. Romans 3 says this in verse 23. It says, everyone has sinned. Everyone has made a mistake. Everyone has done something they didn't want to do. They did it anyway. And it says, and is far away from God's saving presence. But by the free gift of God's grace, all are put right with him through Jesus Christ, who sets them free. God offered him so that by his blood, he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. So Jesus died on a cross, the most horrible death that you could die. And the Bible declares to us that the blood that was shed on the cross was to absorb all of the wrath of the God that created us of all of the mistakes and all of the pain of the sorrow and everything that's involved with our sin and he absorbed it all to himself so that we could be released from it. So most of us in here have probably financial debt to some degree. We're trying to follow Dave Ramsey, but it's just, it's tough. The struggle is real. But let's say, let's pretend that you have a $100,000 debt for whatever reason, student loans, credit cards, whatever. And let's say I call you this afternoon and I said, hey, an anonymous person came to the church today and they told me they don't want you to know who they are, but they have $100,000 and they want to pay off all of your debt. Now, I would probably have to go over there and perform CPR on some of you because <laughs> you'd be like, What? But just imagine that happened. Now, that would mean all of the, the, the weight of the debt would be lifted off. You'd be released. There would be a release. You would be debt-free. In essence, that is what Jesus has done for your soul so that you can have forgiveness. So, so the weightiness of the mistake-making machine that you are would be stripped away from you because his forgiveness isn't just about the forgiveness of the things that you've done. It's a forgiveness of the things that you're doing and even the things that you haven't even thought about doing that you're gonna do. It's for all of it. That's what the forgiveness is about. And I like to say it this way. God's grace is greater than your greatest mistake. Because there's some of you that are thinking like... <laughs> Pastor Jimmy, you don't know me. You don't, you don't know how big this thing is that I've done. I've been pastoring for a while and nothing surprises me anymore. There's some gnarly stuff that people have done with their lives, train wrecks that, that just you'd like have your mouth open like, what? But even in the worst situation that I've seen personally around me, 
God's grace has shown up every time when somebody turned their life to him. And something so horrific actually was healed and restored and and turned into something beautiful. But the enemy of your soul wants you living in this perpetual state of shame because as long as you're locked into your failure, you cannot live in your forgiveness. Romans 8, 1, I love how the Passion Translation reads it. So now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. The case is closed. You are no longer guilty. No one can hold our failures over our heads anymore, not because we're good people, but because we serve a good God who gave his life for us so that we could be released. And so if God has released you, why are you still holding on to it? Embrace you of some failures, but you're not a failure. Accept that you make mistakes, but you're not a mistake. God wants you to live in his forgiveness, not in your failure. I think, honestly, this is where the practice of, of taking the elements of communion really comes in and, it, and is helpful for our daily living with forgiveness, Because every time, think about the elements, and some of you are new to church, so you don't know about this, and I don't really have time today to to talk about it, but the elements of communion is a tradition that has been practiced since Jesus, and he had his final supper with the disciples, and he did something really odd at the time, but he took some bread, and he took this, and he said, as often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me, and then he took the cup likewise, and he says, as often as you drink, this is the blood of my new covenant, drink this in remembrance of me. He was connecting this meal to the sacrifice he was going to do, because he wanted these guys as often as they could to remind themselves that they're no longer living in the failures of their mistakes, of their sin, that they're now living in this perpetual forgiveness that comes only through Jesus. So every time we take the communion elements, we're reminding our soul that we've been released, we are no longer in captivity, that God has restored our identity so that he can get us to our destiny. Come on, somebody. I need some help to preach to the 1145. I need a power bar or something. All right. So we're going to offer communion at the end of our gathering. We did this before COVID, and then COVID was like, oh, do we do this? I don't know. We didn't know what to do, but we're going to do it. And we're going to do it every week going forward. So, so during worship, during whatever time, probably normally during the response time, feel free as the band comes back up here and they sing that you go and you have a time with God where you take that back and, and maybe even your chair, you can do it up here, but, but have time with God where you remember the forgiveness that he's given you to not just remember, but to live in, to walk in, and to make active in your life. Here's number two, write this down. I gotta move quickly. And that is God is able to make something fruitful from your failure. He's able to make something fruitful from your failure. Another often quoted verse that that we quote a lot around here, and, and maybe you've even bought a mug at Hobby Lobby with this verse on it, but it's Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. See, I'm used to uh, applying that to terrible trials and circumstances, going, how is God going to use this terrible trial to bring something good? But this is our declaration of hope that no matter how bad your life is, when God gets involved, he is capable of taking something bad and actually flipping it on its head and making it into something good. But when he says all things, it's not just talking about our trials. It's even talking about our mistakes. He can use even our mistakes and turn them into something that can be beneficial for our life. Now, I'm not minimizing sin. I'm not saying that, hey, you need to go out there and experience God by sinning today so God can show up that that'd be dumb, all right? That's not a good way to live. But God has a way of taking the pain that we're experiencing, even the self-inflicted pain that we brought into our life, and, and he can use it 
into some beneficial way for our life. Let me give you an example. Abraham in the Old Testament, this is like the very beginning of our Bibles, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was given a promise by God, I'm going I'm to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham thought God was a jokester because his wife couldn't have kids. He's like, are you, are you, come on, God, seriously? Like, we're gonna be, I'm going to be the father of many nations. My wife can't even get pregnant. So he listened to God, told his wife. His wife said, okay, let the, okay Lord, let it, let it come true. And time goes by, and just like many of us, they got impatient, and they started thinking, well, God didn't like give us the details of how he was going to do this. So Sarah th- thinks about it and says, maybe you're supposed to get pregnant with our servant, and she's supposed to have your baby for you, and that's going to be the baby that God's going to use. That's going to be the promised child. And so Abraham says, sounds like a good deal to me. So he goes, and, and he has a baby with this other lady, and they name him Ishmael. And Ishmael is, you know, enjoying being the, the son of Abraham. But something didn't set well with Sarah. She didn't like that. And even God shows him and says, I will bless that child, but that is not the promised child that I was talking about. You got ahead of me, Abraham. And then some time goes by and Sarah does get pregnant and she gives birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac is there and he's in the camp and so is Ishmael and there's some sibling rivalry going on and Sarah doesn't like it. And so Sarah gives Abraham an ultimatum. It's either her or me, you choose. And he chose Sarah. So Ishmael and his mom were kind of kicked out of the camp, kind of left to fend for themselves. And you think, okay, well, that's the end of that story. Big mistake, Abraham. You shouldn't have done that. You got ahead of God. You got impatient and look what happened. Well, fast forward to Genesis chapter 37. We read about Joseph, who was the great grandson of Abraham. And he was actually the baby of the family. And his dad loved him a little bit more than his brothers. And, and he gloated in that and even kind of told his brothers this. And his brothers didn't like him. They they so much despised him that they had this idea that we're going to take our brother out and we're going to leave him in a pit and just hope that some animal kills him and then we'll just be done with this guy we don't hear him saying nah daddy loves me the best we'll get rid of him so I'm the youngest I'm the baby of my family and I had old brothers uh, older brothers and they threatened to sell me into slavery um, but they never actually did it uh, Joseph's brothers did it, and we read about this in Genesis 37. It says, And they took Joseph and threw him into a pit. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. So they're eating, they're looking at Joseph, going, What are we going to do with this kid? Some of the brothers are like, Let's just let nature take its course, and some lion will come and have him for lunch. And then another brother said, Nah, that's cruel. So when they saw the caravan of the Ishmaelites, which were the descendants of guess who? Ishmael, they said, let's sell him. Verse 28, they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael. So think how crazy this story is. So Abraham gives birth to Ishmael, who is the work of the flesh, who, for the lack of a better word, he was the mistake. Then fast forward a couple generations, now this mistake is lifting Joseph out of the pit. Now, if if the Ishmaelites had not lifted Joseph out of the pit, what would have happened? He probably more than likely would have died. But instead of dying, he was lifted out of the pit and eventually ended up in a palace, second in command to Pharaoh and the kingdom of Egypt. And in that role, he was able to take Israel, who was going through a famine in the land, and God used Joseph in that position to help Israel out and give them a deliverance when they were failing. Get your head around this story. What was a mistake God is now using for a miracle in the future? Crazy. Only God can do that. Look at your neighbor and say, only God. And when God gets involved in your life, that's the kind of power God has to move in your life. He can take a mistake and turn it into a miracle. He can take the failure and turn it into something fruitful. I have a good friend in Vegas. Her name is Annie LaBert. And Annie has a crazy testimony. You can Google her name after church and, and, and watch her testimony. We don't have time to do it. But she has a ministry in Vegas called Hookers for Jesus. She actually was a guest speaker here uh, not too long ago. 
And, and she came in, she told her story. Now, Annie's story is really crazy because Annie grew up in a middle-class family in Minnesota, uh, but, but she was a young adult that was looking for more, and she had some guys that kind of came in to her and her friends, swept them off their feet, offered them money, jewelry, fancy cars, fancy lifestyles, and they pulled uh, Annie and her friend into sex trafficking. And now they started pimping her out. She started prostituting herself, and it was a gnarly life. And in this crazy life, one time a pimp tried to kill her, put her in the trunk and was going to go and bury her in the desert. And somehow the trunk came up and she got it uh, loose. Another time she overdosed on cocaine. And in that overdose moment, she had this crazy experience with God. And then she fully surrendered her life to Christ and God changed her on the spot that night. And she wasn't just satisfied that God had changed her life. She was upset that she had been deceived the way she was. And so she made it her mission that she wanted to go on the Las Vegas Strip and rescue as many girls as she could that were being caught up in this crazy lifestyle that she got caught up in. And so she started this crazy ministry called Hookers for Jesus. And she goes around on the strip and she starts praying with girls and she tells them, if you want help, then meet me at church tomorrow. And so she started bringing all of these girls to our church, second row, second service. I had a row full of prostitutes. Some of them were former prostitutes. A lot of them were active prostitutes that were just the night before on the street doing their prostitution. And now they're sitting in church. And she has been used by God so much that she created a home called the Destiny's House. And now girls are coming to the house. They're being restored. And God is reviving their lives. And she's giving them hope and a future. And it's all because God took her failure and he turned it around and used it as a way to do ministry to the people that were just like her. And God is using her to change lives. That's an amazing story. So there may be some of you today and you're thinking like, God could never use me to help somebody else out because you look at your mistake. God could use that very same thing that you think is keeping you from ministry and actually create a ministry from that. That's a, that's a word for somebody right now. There's a ministry that God is wanting to birth in somebody here. I didn't say this the last two gatherings. This is for somebody here. This is a word from God for you. But let's move on because we're running out of time. And that is the third truth. And you got to get this down. This is so important. And that is your story is not over. It's not over. Sometimes we get in these moments of failure. We think it's game over. You know, I'm never going to be able to move forward in my life. This is just, I, I messed up royally. There's no way past this point. But God declares in his word that you are a work in progress. That he, he's not done with you yet. In Philippians 1 verse 6, it says, God began doing a good work in you, and he will continue it until it is finished when Jesus Christ comes again. He's not done with you. Yes, you had a bad page in your book. You had a bad chapter of your life. But the good news is your book hasn't been finished yet. There's a new chapter that God wants to bring you into. But in order to embrace the new chapter, you got to be willing to walk away from the old one. Come on, somebody. Come on. You, you can't move into the new while staying in the old you got to put a period where some of you have been putting a comma and you need to flip the page and you need to move into the new identity that you rightfully have because of what Christ did for you, not what you did for God. you got to walk in that newness that he has waiting for you. And he's moving and living in our chapters. And, and the crazy thing is, even when you're not living in failure, I, I just want to declare to some of you, I thought my final chapter was going to be in Las Vegas. Honestly, if you were to ask the 2015 version of Jim and said, hey, are you going to do anything else besides pastor this church in Vegas? I would have said, no way, dude. Or do that. You know, no, I, I, I would do this all my life. And God wasn't done. He, he had this new chapter in Thousand Oaks waiting for me. Maybe God sent me here for one person. That's the way God moves. And I'll take that. I'll take that assignment. But just because you've always done something doesn't mean you will always continue to do that. That there are new adventures and new ministries that God is looking to birth in some of you. Don't be stuck in the past. He's still writing your story. He's still finishing your book. And your best is yet to come. Proverbs 24, verse 16, for though the righteous fall seven times, they do what? They rise again. 
The devil wants to kick you when you're down so that you'll never get back up. What you do to get back at the devil is you guess what? You get back up. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, get back up. <laughs> Not now, but get back up figuratively speaking. All right. The Lord directs the steps of the godly, Psalm 37. He delights in every detail of their lives. And though they stumble, they will never fail. For the Lord holds them by the hand. If God has you, then you shouldn't be intimidated by the stumbling that happens for your life. And the best analogy I, 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 can, I can give you is this analogy that, I don't have the band come up, is this analogy of our navigation systems. We all use them, right? Do you know whoever created the navigation system calculated our mistakes into the navigation system? This is why when we call our navigation system Barbara, I don't know why our kids named her Barbara, uh, so when Barbara comes on, she says, turn right, and we don't turn right. It's the oddest thing. In, instead of Barbara just shutting off, saying, you're lost, I can't help you, shutting off now, pull over and cry because you're lost. Like she, she, what she, she says this, she says, recalculating route. And then all of a sudden there's a new route and, and the destination is still there. It's, the, it's amazing, the technology on, on how, like, I wonder, like, how did we find our way ever, you know, before navigation systems? Like, I guess like the old folding maps. But if our navigation systems are created with our mistakes in mind, how much more is our Heavenly Father prepared to handle the wrong turns that you'll make in your life because there's no amount of wrong turns. There's no amount of wrong off-ramps that you take that will keep you from the place that God wants to take you. He's got a destination for you and the enemy knows that. And so what the enemy tries to tell you to do is to pull over and park the car and not do anything else. When God's saying, hey, this wasn't the turn I wanted for your life. But here it is. So instead of turning right, we're going to go straight. We're going to make another right. God keeps you moving forward despite your mistakes, despite your failures, despite the wrong that you've committed in your life. He keeps moving you forward. Your job is to get back up, put the car in drive. And as long as there's gas in the tank and battery in the navigation system in your life, you will get to where God wants you to go. How many need to receive that today? That God is not finished with you yet. He's just getting started. Your best is yet to come. Stand to your feet, 1145. We're going we're gonna to worship. We're going to open up the communion tables. And it's time that you stop living in your failure and you start living in your forgiveness. And you accept the fact that your story is not finished yet, that God is still writing your story, and he has lives for you to change, people he needs you to heal, families he needs you to restore. And he does it by you simply acknowledging that in Christ, in Christ, you are forgiven. He makes fruit out of failure. And you're not done yet. Fathers, we are all praying and maybe thinking about what point we really need to focus on and, and absorb in our own lives. I just think of Peter again. <laughs> out of all the people that you could have used as a guest speaker, after your Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost, you used the guy that failed you. You used the guy that made a mistake. And he stepped into that calling. He stepped into that invitation to be used by you. And because of that, thousands of lives were changed that day and a movement was started that has continued to move for thousands upon thousands of years that have led us here to 2021 in this room at this golf course, all because a man refused the lie of the accuser saying that he was a failure and chose instead to embrace the identity that he's forgiven 
and that he is here to make a difference. God, may you anoint us in the same way that you anointed Peter. I pray today that restoration takes place in this place, that the spirit of shame would be replaced by a spirit of freedom, that I pray, God, today that once and for all we are going to release the mistakes and the failures that have that have bound us up and held us captive for too long, for too many years. And I'm going to ask you to do something super elementary, but I want you just to think about a mistake that has taken way more headspace than it should have ever taken. Maybe a failure saying, I I know I, I shouldn't have hung out with them and created a pattern of addiction or ways that I treated my kids when they were young. There's all kinds of regret that we can think about, but think about that thing that is holding you back. And I want you to do something that just mimics what has already been done for you through Christ dying on the cross for you. You've been released of that. So I want you right there, cup in your hand. I just want you to just extend those cupped hands to heaven now because you're giving it to God. You're releasing it to God. He's already taken it, but sometimes we need to get our hands up. We need to just let our hands be in position to, to really tell our soul that we're not bound up and held captive to the shame into the mistakes, into the failures, that we are forgiven. We are set free. We're children of God. Just keep your hands up and let's worship God. Thank you for tuning in today to another great message from Atmosphere Church. If this message has spoken to your heart, would you take a moment and share it with your friends? You can connect with us on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Simply do a search for Atmosphere Church through these various platforms and then click the follow or subscribe buttons. It's another great way for us to be able to stay connected with you. If you live in the Southern California area, we would love to invite you to be a part of our family. For more information about our church, go to our official website at atmosphere.church. Finally, if this service and our other resources bless you, would you consider giving back to Atmosphere Church to support not just these things, but to also support the creation of even more resources for you? To make a donation, simply go to our website and click the link that says Give. Your gift of any amount is greatly appreciated. Until next time, we pray you will keep the faith, spread the hope, and live the love.